Be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would draw our minds to yourself, Lord, that you would do your work even now in our souls, that, uh, Lord, you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, gain our attention, help us to see the sweetness of our Savior in this and uh, your purposes and plans for us, Lord. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you're having a, a discussion at your house, kind of like at my house, about what constitutes a Christmas movie. The, the Lord does have us here at Malachi with our uh, natural work through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is, of course, the last book in the Old Testament. And it is our, uh, that means that we've uh, had 39 sermons, counting this one. In the Old Testament, but nonetheless, uh, I want to assure you this is a Christmas sermon, uh, and um, and so certainly appropriate. And uh, as some authentic proof that this is a Christmas sermon, you just sang some of the words in Malachi chapter four: "Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace! Hail the Son of Righteousness! Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing." In his wings. That's um, taken directly from Malachi chapter 4. That was uh, just read, read in your hearing. So, Malachi, of course, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last proclaimer of the one who was coming. And in Malachi, we have a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as well as a reference to John the Baptist. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the messenger of the covenant in chapter 3, verse 1. And then John the Baptist is referred to as the messenger in chapter 3, verse 1. These are two different people. And uh, so we should, be, we should be encouraged. We see that, uh, as we would mentioned before, the nation of Israel was really on the ragged edge of, of the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets had ended, Malachi being the last prophet. There was a recognition that there was a, a slowing of the way that God was bringing the prophets, of course, to them when we see the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the preparer of that one, John the Baptist. It had been 400 years since they heard a prophecy when John the Baptist showed up. And we see that this is really the last iteration, if you will, of prophecy in the Old Testament. But we see this sense of urgency as well in Malachi chapter 4 as he encourages the people, and we see that there are two distinct groups in Malachi. Uh, the Lord is referring uh, to those who will receive the terrible judgment of the Lord, and all, also those who will be drawn into a joyful reception of the Son of Righteousness who brings healing on his wings. As a matter of fact, uh, what we'll notice here is perhaps the farmer's. Uh, most joyful pleasure is uh, referred to in here as well in chapter 4, verse 2. But he encourages people to hold fast to what God had told them in the law. We look at chapter 2, and we'll look uh, a little bit through this. There are four chapters. There uh, really is not a tremendous amount of content here that's compressed by the prophet, of course, by the Lord for us. And as we look at chapter 2, verse 13, he encourages them to, again, refresh their own minds in what it was they were doing regarding worship. One of the things that Malachi brings to their attention is, is the degradation of their own relationships morally and as well as the kind of ho-hum, passe approach that they had to the worship of God in the temple. Uh, and, uh, of course, there were some you know, problems, some expressions of ambivalence toward the ways that they worshiped. And Malachi is bringing their attention to this in chapter 2. For instance, in verse 13, he said, 
this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, Malachi is bringing uh, an important, really, tenant for our own worship. The idea here uh, that, that our ability to enjoy true worship with God in, in worship, true fellowship with God in worship, is directly related to, to their moral stature. Now, this isn't some kind of legalistic payment. It's simply the truth that our fellowship with one another is deepened by our likeness with one another. Have you noticed that? We can affirm, of course, that opposites in some ways attract. We can appreciate that to some degree, right? But we recognize, ultimately, that our greatest delight is in people that are like us. That's our human experience. Uh, And it is true in the cultural degradation that we're experiencing, there are some that would indicate that that's a serious problem. But the reality is is that's simply a matter of a life experience. Uh, We are gathered together around the unity of the truth of God. Uh, What brings us together isn't our disparate differences, but it's those things that are common among us, our common bond, and we pray that those will of course, only be enhanced as we walk with the Lord because what we know is as we become closer in reality to uh, looking like and being like our Savior, uh, the reality is is that we will inevitably enjoy a greater union with one another because why? Not merely because we're more like Christ, but because we'll actually be more like one another in the process. And so... Malachi is simply pointing out the simple truth, and that is that our worship of God is directly impacted. Our ability to enjoy our own worship with the Lord is directly associated with the approach that we make toward the sincerity of moral uprightness. What Malachi noticed, of course, was that there was a degradation in just the way they approached God. There was this ho-hum kind of, yeah, this is good enough. And their fellowship and their worship of God began to suffer. And, they, and, and what we see is somewhat common is revealed here in verse 13 of chapter 2. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping. There was sorrow. But what Malachi is helping for them to understand is that the fault was at their own feet. You're you're weeping over an issue that that you have the key to. As they simply would approach the Lord with a genuine, albeit imperfect, look at who He is and the fellowship that they enjoyed, the investment that they had in one another, uh, they were a little ambivalent and uh, didn't understand the involvement and the notice that God continued to make about their own relationships. God mentions in Deuteronomy 18 that he would send prophets to ensure the Jews that he cared for them. So when he stopped sending them, as Malachi was the last, it was also a matter of two cases, of two peoples, if you will. It was either because of his displeasure, as during the Babylonian exile, or to hold them in suspense so that they would have a stronger desire for Christ. to hold them in suspense. Now, this is all part of many people's experience during Christmas. You don't have to raise your hand for this, but how many of you have an Advent calendar? How many of you have uh, some little calendar that sits in your home and a little piece moves from one day to the other until you finally get to Christmas, right? What's the purpose of that? It's to build suspense. It's a recognition again, of our human experience. That the lengthy anticipation 
with a firm expectation that it really is going to happen is among the greatest senses and desires that we have. It's going to be a little while, but it's going to happen. It's going to be a little while, but it's going to happen. And this is what what God does as he really ends the the prophets at the ragged edge of the Old Testament, right? But he introduces to us that which is absolutely certain, the Son of Righteousness brought to earth, bringing healing on his wings. There was a challenge and difficulty in that day. And here's Malachi. Here's Malachi telling them that it, it's all in accord with God's plan. Have we not been trained by long years of finding workarounds to be impatient when it comes to waiting? I mean, the reality is in the days that we live, you know, there, there often are workarounds to prevent you from waiting. That's not a sin, necessarily, but it's a sin when we're thinking about waiting on the Lord, right? Because what happens when we don't wait on the Lord is that we don't get the Lord's things. We don't get His word. We don't get His answer. We don't get His purposes. And, and so we, it would be important for us to think that there is, there is a difference between waiting and waiting on the Lord. Those, those two things are, you know, the things that you wait on aren't necessarily waiting on the Lord, right? But how do we, how do we wait on the Lord? What does it look like to wait patiently for the Lord? That's what we're doing now, of course. We're waiting on the second advent of Christ, His return. But in the Old Testament, all of those references were first to the first advent of Christ, to His coming. This prophecy, as I mentioned, begins with God's expressed frustration at the ungratefulness and the perverseness of this people. For he was neither loved nor feared. And that's why the messenger was needed to prepare the way in the hearts of those who would be redeemed. Now I want to appropriate some Christmas and holiday experiences, I think, to better help us really understand the sense of what the prophet is saying here regarding the one who would prepare the way. And I'm going to take a little bit of advantage of your own preparations for people coming to your home. Okay? Now, generally, I expect that you're genuinely excited about people visiting you or going to visit others for Christmas. I expect that in general that's probably true, and I would certainly encourage you to be encouraged about visiting others, about being a blessing to others and having them in your home as well. But we also recognize that uh, the reality, our own life experience, is that the state of our homes is not continually the way that we would prefer for it to be when people come to our home. All the laundry will have to be put out of sight. The dishwasher will probably need to be emptied and that big stack will have to probably be dealt with finally. You might need to do one last scrub in the bathroom, right? And how do we think of that? Is it condemnation? Are you shocked that your house isn't ready all the time, every moment? Does that bother you? Because, I mean, the reality is our own life experience really doesn't allow for our homes to be ready 100% of the time, right? So I, wanna, I just want to 
set you at ease and unburden you right now and let you know that, you know what? It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. We enjoy a clean house. We don't always have it. Right? That might be one of the reasons we enjoy it so much. Now, the reason that I want to try to help us disconnect preparation for joyful things from condemnation is because what happens when this son of righteousness comes with healing in his wings? What was it that John the Baptist, the preparer, the messenger, what was he doing? He was clearing the way. It, again, in the, in the simple aspect of our own holiday preparation, right? he was cleaning the house. It's not condemnation. Now, I recognize that in, your, in the years when you were little, right, and you got mud all over you, right, and you were playing outside, it might be that you weren't so happy about a bath. But the reality is really in our, in our human experience is that most of us actually, even though we enjoyed getting dirty, we also like to be clean. Is that true, generally? We kind of like to get the stuff off our hands, right? I had to hose myself off yesterday evening because of some things that I stepped in in my little farm, right? So, I mean, and so this is just our, and you know what? That was, that was good. That was a good thing, right? I, I was very happy to be purified yesterday evening because of what was on me. And so Malachi is helping for us to, to think about this in the terms of a blessing. Is the coming of Christ a blessing? Is being purified by Christ a blessing? Is the revelation, when, when people come into your home, even after you've cleaned, have you noticed that you see things you never did before? <laughs> Where was that when I was cleaning up? Why do I see it now? Why is it that this three-year-old is handing me a fur ball? And this is one of the experiences that we have when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us, this first advent that Malachi was referring to, right, is what happens, is this son of righteousness, what happens when you turn the lights on? You see things you didn't see before. And when the son of righteousness, the revealer of the truth of ourselves, he begins to show us some things, and this is this is the experience, right, of the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to see things in ourselves that, that need to be purified. Now, we can think of that as a hurtful condemnation. But that wouldn't be an objective truth of what's really happening. If the silver in your home was an animate object, would it say that it enjoyed being polished? But nonetheless, you recognize that you can't really even use it, likely, unless it is. It's a good thing to God's people. There are two different groups that are approached in the book of Malachi. One is those people that will be condemned. They're out of the kingdom. They never were in it. But of course, we are prayerful that through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the gospel, that we are those who will delight ourselves in the Son of Righteousness, but also recognizing that as the Son of Righteousness comes, there comes with him a purification. The Levites were the flower of Israel, the Levites. And what's going to happen to the Levites? Well, chapter 2, verse 4, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. 
That's us. That's us. He speaks of gratefulness to God. Of the fear of God. I draw your attention to chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And this is one of the aspects, if you were to read Malachi, and it wouldn't take you but about 20 minutes, or probably less, to read the whole prophecy, but he has this normal kind of way of speaking. Uh, He says, but you say, how have we wearied him? And you'll notice a number of times in the prophecy here, but you say this, but you say that. How have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them. He delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? The impression, because of the long coming of the Messiah, because it was taking so long, and it would in fact take 400 years longer after Malachi is off the scene, because it took so long, what were people beginning to say? Well, they weren't outright rejecting God, but they were saying things like this. You know what? There really is no objective right or wrong. What's my proof for that? Well, it's because God doesn't do anything about it. Where's the God of justice? Have you ever thought like that? That's the day we live in, right? Where is the God of justice? And then some would go so far to say, oh, well, you don't really want God's justice. Because if you had God's justice, you would be cast into hell. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) Not as the elect. God would be unjust to cast the elect into hell. You want God's justice. And the first advent of Christ was a judgment. It was a beginning, if you will, of those of God's being on the right and those that rejected God being on the left. It was a a distinction made between the sheep and the goats that will come to fullness at the second advent of Christ. There's no reason for you to be ambivalent about the justice of God. We need it now, and we long for it rightly. But the reality is, is that he is not uh, away. He isn't looking away from us. He's fully involved in, in our lives, in this world that he's created. We thought a little bit about that last week. Can you imagine, just an example, spending a lifetime creating this intricate object? That you tried and failed so many times before, but finally you perfect it. Can you, can you imagine, if you will, just walking away from that completely? Leaving it in a parking lot somewhere? Well, let me assure you, God didn't have to have a second try for the earth, but he didn't leave it in a parking lot anywhere. He's fully involved in every aspect of its working. God did not and has not walked away from this world nor has he walked away from you. God hasn't left Israel to their own ways. As a matter of fact, the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now I want you to focus for a moment on this word suddenly because the implications of those who were complaining was that oh everything goes on as it always has before. God is ambivalent. He's not involved in anything in this world. But then Malachi says no no. No God will suddenly come into his temple. 
Now, I want to ask you to place yourself, if possible, in your imagination in the position of one Anna or one Simeon. They were waiting in the temple for the Messiah. What do you think they would report to their friends when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into the temple? Well, you know, it was all really a gradual thing, actually. It was this slow-motion process. I don't think they would say that. I think that they would report to their friends that you wouldn't believe what happened. All of a sudden, he came into the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly, we knew he was coming. But just not on that day. But we were there. And he came suddenly into the temple. And there he was. There he was. And all of a sudden we're hearing about this messenger who was preparing the way. Because of the obstacles that people had raised which prevented their redemption and the promised revelation of their salvation. There needed to be a messenger to clear the way. This is for the redeemed. Are you offended that there had to be some spiritual junk removed? from your life so that the Messiah could come in? Does it offend you that you are inclined to vacuum your house before your guests come? I hope not. I hope that every sweep of that vacuum you think, oh, Yes, little Timmy is going to be a little bit of a mess, but I love it when he's here. He's coming to prepare a way. We should be so grateful for this preparatory work. Here the prophet introduces not Yahweh the Father, but Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would draw your attention back to your scriptures in 2.17. Now, we have been helped by most translators in this very simple distinction between the one and the other. Are you speaking about the Lord, or are you speaking about the Lord? <laughs> well... That all sounds very confusing. But actually, our translators have made it quite easy for us. In this case, if you look at 2.17, you'll notice, I expect, because you are of the most sharp people that I know, that the Lord is made up of four capital letters in 2.17. And you, I feel quite confident, recognize that that is simply a translation of the Hebrew word for Yahweh. And we should see in that that that's a reference to the Father. But then in 3.1 you'll notice that the, Lord, the word Lord is also written down there. And you'll notice that it isn't in all capital letters. It's only got one capital, the big letter L. And that is a translation of the word Adonai. And that is a reference to this righteous mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Malachi promised the Jews both a king and a reconciler referenced here in this term Adonai. King under the title of Lord and reconciler under the title of messenger of the covenant. The Lord whom you seek, chapter 3, verse 1, will come suddenly to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. These are the same people. The Lord Adonai, the messenger of the covenant. I would draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I'll read it to you. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is associated with this idea in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. The Lord whom you seek. It's stated in Hebrews as well, very simply, words, consider Jesus. In other words, this idea, set your hope fully on this one. And no aspect of preparation could ever offend the one who is setting their hope fully on this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly come into his temple in admonishment at the implication that God delays or didn't intend to fulfill his promises of a Messiah. I do enjoy listening to the work of Handel with the Messiah, the music work, and I can hear beating away in my mind who can endure the day of his coming, referenced right here in Malachi chapter 3. I think the bass sings that. Who can endure the day of his coming? There's two groups referred to in Malachi. The one group will not. But the redeemed will. Because he's the son of righteousness with healing on his wings. Of course, we couldn't endure the day of his coming if it weren't for our redemption in the Jesus Christ, but nonetheless, the point here is that the day of His coming is a glorious day for God's people. There's no reason for us to fear that. Our King is coming. It's a glorious day. It's a wonderful day. At the first advent, as well as the second, the redeemed are delighted in the nearness of Christ. It is this expectation of his coming that should delight us and sustain us. Matthew 25, 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins. What's that about? It isn't about people that hope the glorious day never comes. Let me just say that. It's about a people who long for the glorious day. but who may in some ways express a certain ambivalence about its goodness. But not all. Verse 3, chapter 3, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Again, the flower of Israel. These are His people. Refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The redeemed are delighted in the nearness of Christ. But they needed a trial to cleanse them. They needed a trial to cleanse them. I would direct your attention again to the little letter of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. First Peter chapter 1, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you need a trial to cleanse you? Malachi and Peter understand it that way. When you're dirty, do you want to be clean? Can we think of it in the case of God's people as being perfected? Can we think of it as healing? Yes, our sin has separated us from God, but we are his people. Can we desire that which cleanses us? It's undeniable. The celebration of the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ among God's people involves cleaning. I'm not trying to be silly here. But you've likely already made this connection in your mind. But it also involves something more important, and that is a spiritual purification. That's a good thing brought about by a trial. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we have this idea of trial, this this concept of trial that has to do with the testing of, of the genuineness of our faith. The genuineness of our faith. Most of us have some association with using tools. tools and if you've used tools for a very while you have noticed that some tools that you go to time and again are very useful and you've also noticed that some tools are not sometimes you frustratingly throw those tools in the trash can But you've noticed also in your human experience that those tools that you go to time and again, when you use those tools, you have this strange warming in your heart, don't you? I knew this was going to work. It always does. Look at it. Go. It's shiny because I use it so much. This is the idea that's being passed in 1 Peter chapter 1. The tested genuineness of your faith. I had to change the tire on my car this morning because I, before I came to church. And what I noticed when I went to change that tire for the very first time since I've owned this vehicle is that the tool that was meant to lower the tire because of the little tube that was there to direct me to that which I was to unscrew was offset. And so I would never be able to lower my tire in its current condition. It would have never worked. And so what occurred is I tested the fact that that wasn't going to work, right? But in this case... In this idea of the elect referred to in Malachi chapter 3 as well as 1 Peter, what we see is this, albeit imperfect, but nonetheless recognition, yes, this is genuine faith. This is the right thing. This will work. Look, you're enjoying the way that it works time and again, and what happens is you gain an appreciation for that. And that's called assurance when we refer to it as faith. We're 
affirmed again that albeit not perfect, our faith is the real thing. And its tested genuineness, as Peter indicates, is revealed. Our sin has separated us from God. He not only is a great light, but a great revealer we see because of his light. And so it does bring upon us these ideas of correction, of admonishment, of encouragement, of the revelation of the truth about ourselves. Judgment on the wicked will come, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. By the grace of God, if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus, this isn't us. Verse 2 in chapter 4, he turns, he pivots to the true Israel, the remnant, the redeemed. By the way, I'm not trying to imply that one section of this building is redeemed and one section isn't. Turning to the true Israel, the remnant, the redeemed, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing. With healing in its wings as we sung. Hark the herald angels sing. Leaping like calves from the stall. From the stall. Son, of course, appropriate name for Christ. God has given a much clearer light in Christ than previously. Listen to what Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, said to his son in Luke chapter 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of, the salva of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist went before the Lord Jesus to prepare his ways. We may think of that, that somehow John was removing some sort of obstacles that Jesus couldn't get over, that it was sort of a, it, the reference here was to Christ, right? But what are, where are these obstacles? They're in us, right? To prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway. It's a reference to that work that must be done in the people of God. The fathers didn't wander blindly in the dark, but the law was obscure in pointing to Christ and our great need of a Redeemer. Without this light, it is inevitable that we wander and lose our way. The Lord Jesus says in John 8, chapter, John chapter 8, verse 12, rather, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By the way, if you're going to follow Jesus, that involves something. It involves waiting. Have you ever been the only one who knew where to go, but you noticed that the people that were following you were in front? They don't have any idea where they're going. They don't know which room to go in. They don't know which car you're going to get in that they need to get in as well, right? And so this, this is a common experience for us, right? The reality is you're going to have to wait on the one that you're following. <laughs> We've got to wait on the Lord. If we follow him, then we can see because we aren't the light source. He's the light source, right? We follow him. Because of that. Now I can tell you, I can tell you by a glorious experience of the sweet joy 
of going out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I recognize that most people do not have the experience of seeing a newborn calf leap out of a stall. But I can also tell you that I cannot even explain to you the joy and pleasure that comes from seeing a little calf or a little lamb leap out of the stall in anticipation, not only of enjoying running and jumping, but also of a fresh pasture. It is undeniably the source of the greatest joy and pleasure I would expect of a farmer that raises animals. Skipping like a calf. If you, if you, if you, want, to, if you want to have these, these, these joyful kind of, uh, you know, vibes, you know, you might consider looking at that someday. I can't explain it to you. But that's what Malachi is getting at. And so it's possible that us folks that go to the freezer section for our ground beef never really understand what it is that he's saying. Leaping like a calf out of the stall. I'm telling you, it's incredible. Take my word for it. It's it's a joyful thing. And that's what Malachi is getting at here. Why the joy of leaping? Because the arrival of the Lord and the accompanied purification is not condemnation, but joyful beautification and being in the presence of our loving King and Mediator. Verse 2, you who fear my name. We know that, for instance, righteousness and holiness are keys to our own delight in worshiping of God. But we also see here that he brings to the fore another idea, and that is the fear of God. And this is normal kind of currency for the Scriptures, those who fear the Lord, right? This idea that we submit ourselves joyfully to one that we cannot see. We pray to one that we cannot hear. Because of the work that he does in us, we know that he is the ultimate reality. He directs their attention for the meantime. Before this Messiah comes to earth, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Here Malachi is saying, look, I myself am moving off the scene. Remember these things that I taught you, right? As the Apostle Paul would tell those pastors, Timothy and Titus, and those, remember this, work in this way. Recall following me. Recall what the Lord Jesus did. Remember this. That's what Malachi is saying here. And then he is giving them an understanding of what it's going to look like at this great revival at the Advent, which in fact it was no less than that, a revival when Messiah came. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, I think it's certainly appropriate that we can apply this in general to this two generations that live in many homes, parents and children. But it probably would be appropriate for us to recognize that I wasn't getting at this idea that the greatest problem in Israel was an interrelational turmoil in a home. He was referring, the idea of the fathers is of those faithful of old. The fathers of the ancestors, the patriarchs, the godly line of faithful people. The children in this case in general are the degenerate descendants in Malachi's own time. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight says, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. The primary reference to Proverbs 22:28 is not about a fence, by the way. It doesn't have to do with, yeah, my property line is way back there, and don't move that, because if you do, you'll be on somebody else's place. That's not the point. The point is, is that that old-time religion that some of you have sung about, that's 
the true religion. And to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children is that they will once again delight in that which is true, mutually one of another. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8 says, All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, the reason I think that's a helpful reference is, is it really it does give us the cause of how we've moved away from the religion of the fathers. Look, we have ears that aren't even satisfied with hearing. It's the only thing God has made them for. We have eyes that are not even satisfied with seeing. And so why should we be satisfied with the religion of the fathers? We're continually trying to modify it. And Malachi is saying, no, no. Revival. The advent of the Messiah. You'll know. Because there will be a revival of true religion. Sin's degradation and man's impatience and dissatisfaction with revealed religion in the Bible has sent him looking elsewhere for innovation and good news on other fronts. The revival coming with this advent, as Malachi promises, will turn the hearts of the present generation to the old paths of faithfulness. And the fathers, the great cloud of witnesses spoken of in Hebrews 12.1 will smile upon the turning to Christ. It'll be a glorious thing. And we've seen it in our midst, haven't we? We delight in the truths of Scripture. We delight in this Messiah who has come and who's coming again. We delight in what he reveals in truth. We're okay with purification. We're all right with the house being cleaned. These are indications of the Lord's work. And these are also things that we should long for those who have not yet come to Christ. But we see here that Malachi is helping us, is placing us really in a better position, if you will, to receive all that the Lord has for us. Let us pray. Father, you are a glorious God. And Lord, I pray that we as your people would delight ourselves in the Messiah, who has come and who is coming again. And that this delight, Lord God, would, would put a spring in our step of joy and delight, Lord, as we speak of the redemption that can come from none other but you. In Jesus' name, amen.